Hello, Jim. You're looking pretty good for 100, if I may say so. <laughs> no, oh, seriously, I can't believe that it's this summer Planet Pod turned 100. Can you? No, I know. It's fantastic, isn't it? Um, I, maybe I've a little bit less hair than I had, and maybe, or maybe it's <laughs> slightly greyer than it was when we, start, when we recorded episode number one. But uh, no, it's been really amazing, isn't it? Who would have thought it, you know, when we started off in our small studio right at the top of Euston Tower that we would uh, we would end up with a hundred uh, fascinating programs and we had I've counted them up but we had over 200 guests uh, and we have all been really interesting stimulating passionate uh, informative which is which is great and we've had baronesses to beekeepers we've had climate activists you've even sat on Waterloo Bridge or whichever bridge it was uh, with uh, was Waterloo Bridge, Waterloo actually. Waterloo bridge. Yeah, was, we've had yeah. chefs we've had everyone in between and and um, really I mean we should you know, we are really grateful to those people that supported us along the way. And I guess, you know, Steve and his team at Planet Mark got us started. And Sue Nelson, particularly at Breakthrough Finance and Food Tech and their podcasts, which, who were hugely instrumental in, in helping us to get going. So a huge they thanks were. to them. Yeah, massive thanks to Steve and to Sue, because, I mean, they, you know, Steve kind of prompted the idea and certainly sat in on some of those early shows, didn't he? Until yeah. he got too busy, obviously. Um, and if it hadn't been for Sue lending us that studio, I don't think we'd have ever kind of cut our teeth in this. No, no. And I think, I think the thing that I found really amazing is how much I've learned along the way and how much uh, I, my eyes have been open, genuinely opened uh, to all the subjects which our guests have talked about. But I think particularly the, you know, the importance of sustainability in its broadest sense, sustainability in terms of looking at the natural environment, you know, rewild, the, the discussions we've had around rewilding. I mean, a lot of the things have come back to an understanding and a recognition of the fact that we don't value the natural environment enough. We don't put enough value on what it gives to us, both in terms of our well-being, our, our you know our sense of purpose, and all those sort of things. But also just you know the, the actual value it, it gives us in terms of the material things that we get and we rely on, um, you know, and the fact that we take it all for granted. So that to me has been a real eye opener, um, and it's been a privilege actually to to get a little bit of better understanding. And I hope all those people who are listening to our pods have felt the same way and, and continue to to uh, to get that benefit as well yeah i hope so i must say i'm i'm with you on that i feel i learn something every time and i can't really pick out a favorite pod because because everyone is special and different and and i come away knowing something i didn't know before or understanding or appreciating something i hadn't appreciated before um i think you're right about that understanding of the natural world i mean it's the covid cliche isn't it that we're much more in tune with our environment but i do think people have perhaps begun to sit up and take notice in a way that they hadn't before. And I really hope that we can contribute to that debate around climate change and the need to take action because time is running out. Yes. <laughs> we really, really haven't got long left to get this sorted. And, and what better time than now when we're all actually focused on what the future could hold and how the future could be better for all of us as we come out of this terrible pandemic. I have to say, though, I do miss our little studio in the Bermondsey Biscuit Factory, don't yes. you? I mean, particularly because we, you know, put so much effort and you put so much love and work into it and all those fantastic panels that you've built and all the soundproofing. And But we manage, we cope, yes. don't we, with yes. the Zoom we, studio? We, we do, and Zoom has been great. And, and obviously there are there are other providers of, uh, of similar services, I'm sure. But um, no, but I do miss my broom cupboard. They're not sponsoring being... us, so I don't think it matters. No, no. <laughs> But uh, being able to sit in my and twiddle those little knobs and put my headphones on, but uh, no, it's it, we, we do miss it, and I'm sure people miss being able to get back to their places of work. But at the same time, you know, there are compensations, and we know that uh, perhaps a, a, a more flexible way of working um, is is the future. We know that, 
uh, or is likely to be the future. But I think there will always be a need for us to get together per, you know, yeah. person to person and, uh, and do these sorts of things. So um, nothing replaces that face to face contact, indeed, really, does indeed. it? And those, those, those chats and cups of coffee. However, we manage. And uh, thanks to some, some really good kit, which you persuaded me to buy. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, the quality of the programmes holds up. And, you know, we're not going to let not having a studio stop us from doing 101 and beyond programmes. Absolutely not. Particularly this autumn, because we've got a really exciting series on climate justice um, that, that we're kicking off today. Um, we're going to be looking at wildlife crime, deforestation, how important biodiversity is in keeping the planet in balance and what happens when it gets destroyed. And today's programme, we have a guest speaker who's really been on the front line of fighting for climate justice in Colombia and Mexico, among other places. So I guess we should probably get going. We should. Uh, I really look forward to today and, as you say, to the next, the next 100 in our, in our uh, this, uh, this journey that we're on. Yeah, 101 and beyond. Absolutely. Great stuff. Planet Pod. Essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. To start our series on climate justice, I'm delighted to welcome our guest on Planet Pod, Monica Ferrier Tinta, who is a barrister with 20 Essex Chambers. Monica has 20 years' experience in international litigation and is a thought leader in climate change justice. She appeared in the first Rights of Nature case in Ecuador and has most recently been counsel in the case of global biodiversity importance, the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta, La Lina Negra case. And to add to that, she's currently shortlisted for Barrister of the Year 2020 for The Lawyer magazine. Monica, wow, what a CV and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Let's start with that last point about um, your being shortlisted for Barrister of the Year, because that is a very um, exciting and prestigious um, award, and I'm, I'm absolutely sure you're going to swing it and win it. But why do you think you were, were nominated in the first place? What is it that they were seeing in you that they weren't seeing in some of your colleagues? Um, well, um, I believe that one of the areas that um, has been... Um, Featuring in my practice quite a lot in the last year is um, climate change litigation. Um, and within that, I've been dealing with issues concerning raising sea level rise, um, sinking islands, um, climate change as a human rights issue, um, facing uh, out coal mining as well, and, and, and the different manners in which you can enforce the Paris Agreement uh, in a context where climate change has become really a very, um, I would say, existential issue and a challenge uh, for the world. So I guess all the, all the different cases that I've been dealing with um, caught the attention of, of the jury and, and, and I was nominated by, um, well, by the panel that, that judged this um, prestigious award. So one of the cases perhaps that I like to um, highlight is an um, extremely important one uh, right now pending before the Human Rights Committee. Um, this is a UN organ that uh, monitors the, um, I would say, the compliance with the uh, international civil and political rights. So you may, you may wonder what does a human rights treaty has to do with climate change? But precisely that's the point that uh, 
Today, we, we have come to a point where there is growing awareness that the, um, the environmental degradation and the effects um, of uh, climate change around the world is actually making a major impact on the quality of life of people and on human rights. So this particular case was brought against Australia. It's called the Torres Strait Islanders case. I am counseling the case. And this is the first world case to reach you know, an organ of, of, of world uh, importance. And there, the committee is going to decide um, whether this particular state, Australia, has done enough in terms of both adaptation measures and mitigation measures to protect the people um, in, in its jurisdiction. And the Torres Strait Islanders are First Nations uh, uh, inhabitants who actually are arguing that their, their, their islands are sinking and they are facing in the near future having to be um, displaced and, and this land for them is extremely important because culturally they have a connection and a way of life that is attached to this place. So that is the relevance of this case and it's going to set a precedent worldwide, which will be important for all state parties to the International Cabinet on Civil and Political Rights, including the United Kingdom. It's absolutely fascinating to view some of the challenges of climate change and climate justice through the, the human rights lens, because I think very often those of us who work and, and, and live in the sustainability um, environmental field can sometimes forget that. We, we focus so much on biodiversity and, and you know, the impact of man on the climate and preventing you know, what we consider to be private climate degradation and pollution. We forget sometimes about the human rights issue, and that's a really, really powerful additional part of the argument isn't it and i know that 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 particular case you're working with client earth who are you are great friends of planet pod and whom we have on often but i think that's really important to see those two sides of the conversation coming together because it's it's twice as powerful and just so i'm really clear about this so so these these islanders why is it that their their land is is so at risk what is the threat to to, to the torres strait islanders um you said they were sinking what how, how yeah. has that come about that's because of the erosion. So the sea is eating up slowly the island. And that is because it's an effect of, of climate change when it happens, uh, there's an impact on the sea, uh, the sea level rise. So each time, uh, each year, um, you have uh, areas of, of, of the land that are now covered by the sea. And not only that, but also if you... There are other elements uh, concerning the sea that affect the life in the land. Um, an example of that, of that is that because temperatures have changed, also the seasons are unpredictable. So, for example, um, and this affects everything from, uh, for example, food security, like, like these cultures rely on certain diets and, you know, they could find fish in certain places and now everything has changed. So places where they used to go and find fish at a certain point in time, no, it's no longer there. And this is also linked to their culture because there are certain species that they uh, rely on to uh, have certain rituals, um, to teach their, their children, so the, the next generation, their own customs and, and traditional culture. And nowadays that is a uh, uh, no longer um, as it was before and is threatened. Also, uh, for example, the connection that they have with their ancestors 
is extremely important um, as a way of life for them. And you have had their entire cemeteries that have been affected by the, um, by the sea washed away, you know, with actual corpses and, and everything being uncovered. And this is extremely painful for the communities. Um, their homes, obviously, also physically have been affected. Uh, they had to move. Uh, the water levels have made it impossible to um, remain in some areas. So all in all, um, it, is, um, it is quite an impact for them. And, and, and th this is why it's so compelling because, I mean, you have people that, indigenous peoples that don't have a choice because of their attachment to the place. It's not like you can just move somewhere else and start all over again. These are um, collectivities that have lived for centuries in, in, in a place. And, and they have this strong connection and this understanding of nature that, you know, is, is, is very um, unique to their own culture. Um, and my appreciation for that world, I mean, as when I was working on, on their statements and, and, and preparing the case uh, as, as, as an instructed barrister in the case for, for the committee, I could see how an entire wonderful culture could go, you know, with the disappearance of that world and how necessary it was to actually implement the right measures, both to adapt, to help to assist this population to adapt to the challenges, as well as ensuring that um, the measurements concerning mitigation were right in place at the right time, now that it's urgent. Hugely culturally and environmentally important um, that the communities are able to continue to live in those, in those places. And I think that what strikes me about what you're saying is it's quite difficult, I guess, to pin down responsibility on one nation. Now, I know that the, the case is against Australia, but but actually global sea level rises is to do with global warming, isn't it? And heating. And we're all, you know, we're all responsible for that in a way. So, so how is it that you're able to say the responsibility lies particularly with Australia and to make the case there? And And is that something that you think you know, could be replicated in other communities that are at threat in similar ways? I mean, I was thinking perhaps of, you know, other island nations who might be suffering the same fate. Sure, climate change is a global um, phenomenon, meaning that, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a transboundary phenomenon, it's affecting the entire world. But when you actually talk about the um, application of human rights treaties to the jurisdiction of a particular state that has signed up to, um, to, to the human rights treaty in question, um, it is not that complicated to understand how this operates. For example, um, states have not only um, the duty to refrain from uh, uh, killing or you know having the right to life threatened, but they have an obligation to ensure the integrity of the people within the jurisdiction, to ensure the right to life, to ensure the right to culture. And so when you have, um, so this, this may operate at two levels. So there is a, a duty to protect and there is a duty to act um, with due diligence. So when you have a threat that and it doesn't matter the origin of the threat. So first of all, you know, just the fact that a catastrophe of, of, of this nature may be affecting um, these islands. And, and it's a phenomenon that has not been ignored, let's say, by, by you know, sophisticated states know already. Um, so this is already uh, uh, um, known by, by the states. 
but I think the, the key thing is that what is what has to be implemented is this act of due diligence on the part of the state to take action as soon as you know or you ought to have known that there is this risk, this serious risk to these uh, fundamental rights of a community. So, for example, if they were, I don't know, a tsunami, states would have to act. So it doesn't matter. Because this is a gradual process, I suppose, isn't it? And they've been able to turn a blind eye. Exactly. Exactly. So there is a duty to ensure to ensure the protection of those rights and to act as a good as a good, I would say, a state that is aware of what those duties to ensure are. So that's one level. So the most, uh, if you want, sophisticated level is the issues of gas emissions and mitigation. But there again, um, I think we have already very clear standards. The Paris Agreement gave us, uh, particularly for those states that are party to the Paris Agreement, very specific goals and very specific obligations. And again, this is an obligation of um, due diligence on the part of the states to have a, a an ambition that goes um, along, obviously, the capabilities of a state. So states know exactly what, in in what trajectory they should be um, going. So that's why um, when you actually look at the human rights treaties, it's not so complicated in the context of, of, of a state party that is party to both treaties to see what is, is the duty, you know, at stake. So that's how um, uh, the ICCPR, the Cabinet on Civil and Political Rights, is relevant in the context of uh, climate change. And uh, to just finalize my point, the, uh, this is a perspective, this is a point of view that has been taken by the UN itself. Uh, for example, when states go to um, inform the committee as to how they are complying with this treaty, with, with their treaties, treaties obligations, the committee is already taking into account the phenomenon of, of climate change and asking questions as to whether they are taking enough measures on adaptation, on mitigation, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a major shift. And this is how a human rights treaty also adapts to, uh, to the challenges of our times when responding to those uh, threats to human rights, fundamental human rights. I, I just wanted to ask you, when you talk about the state, I mean, obviously, um, you know, we all know the responsibilities that those who've signed up to the Paris Agreement, the 2015 Paris Agreement, and the 192 countries who signed, including the UK. Um, we, we know that they were committed to, to taking action and to trying to bring down, um, you know, uh, global warming and actually reduce, reduce the level of warming to 1.5 degrees and below. But when you're talking about a state's duty, is that a legally binding obligation on the state? So is the state in question, which is, I guess, in this case, Australia, are they legally obliged to take action there? Or is this just something that they've committed to as part of that bigger treaty? Because I guess part of the problem with treaties is that people say, oh, yes, we'll sign which treaties, and then they do nothing. And it's terribly difficult to actually enforce treaties. And, and you know, some of us back off our treaty obligations, particularly current in the UK at the moment, to suffer a conversation of winding your way out of a, a, a legally binding treaty. But, but is that a legal duty of the state because they've signed up to the 2015 Paris Agreement? Absolutely. There is a legally binding, a treaty by definition is a legally binding instrument with specific obligations. Um, uh, in this case, uh, clearly obligations of conduct. And, and a state should be able to demonstrate that it's complying with such obligations of, of conduct. In this case, um, we are, this is what is being invoked, it's a human rights treaty. 
But when you analyze a human rights treaty, you analyze a human rights treaty within its normative environment and also in light of the obligations of the state in question. Um, so yes, it uh, would be my answer to your question. It's a legal binding. PlanetPod is sponsored by Akil Management Sustainability Consultancy, providing resources and support for all businesses to help them tackle their climate change challenges and work towards net zero. For more, visit akilmanagement.com. And we, we, we should move on because I really want to talk to you about some of the other cases you've been working on, particularly um, the, the cases in, in, in Ecuador and Bolivia and, and Colombia. But, but, but can I just ask, in terms of the Torres Straits, is, the, is there an outcome where they are able to remain where they are, the native peoples are able to remain? I mean, there is enough that can be done to mitigate the impact of climate change to make those islands continue to be habitable, or are they facing an inevitable move? Uh, well, I believe that uh, it is uh, in the public domain that there are many different measures that the state can take in order to address uh, these mitigation needs from, you know, uh, uh, building sea walls to creating the right infrastructure, um, et cetera, et cetera. So these are, th th there's plenty nowadays of knowledge around as to what what works. In other places, for example, they're looking at uh, mango groves and using that as a way to regenerate the space. Um, so I think that we are um, very conscious nowadays as to the different uh, possibilities in terms of uh, adaptation measures that, that states can take. That's encouraging to hear because, it, you know, there's some things that we very difficult to control the rise of sea level, but really important to help communities adapt so they can remain in their in their native lands. Um, you've been working particularly recently on a very high profile case, I believe, um, looking at the impact of coal mining. Um, and, and I think that has a huge, obviously has huge ramifications for biodiversity and uh, quality of life and the physical environment of the people who live in and near the coal mine um, experience, but obviously also has enormous political small p implications for how we, we approach these cases. Um, so can you just tell us a little bit, Monica, about what you've been doing over the summer? Because it sounds incredibly interesting and quite demanding, I think. Well, yes, um, I was instructed by Cajar, a Colombian um, a group of lawyers, uh, to act on a case um, that actually concerns um, one of the biggest or uh, largest uh, coal mining, um, open pit coal, coal, mining, coal mines in the world, and the largest in Latin America, uh, the Cerrejon uh, mine. Um, I was um, instructed to act on behalf of YU communities. So YU communities this is an indigenous group um, who lives in the north, northern part of Colombia, in La Guajira. Um, and uh, this uh, coal mine is located in their ancestral land. Now, the coal mine has been operating already for a few decades. Um, however, um, there, has, there was there's a history, if you want, of litigation. Um, the communities have uh, taken up different um, legal action before the Constitutional Court of Colombia uh, and other um, domestic courts in Colombia. And the most recently one um, was delivered um, last December, was issued last December. And it ordered, it was brought by women 
that live in an area very close to the mine in a place called El Provincial. This is a, a community of about more or less 700 people. 33% um, um, of uh, this um, a group are, are children. And the children are particular, particularly vulnerable to the effects of the mine. And, and basically they argue that um, the, the, the mine was affecting the air, it was, has been contaminating um, the water and the land. And this has created a real, um, well, there has been a real health impact in the population. So there's that, the dust and the particles coming out of the open cast mining itself, just polluting both water supplies and, and the air that they breathe. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and as you know, uh, this, this is extremely, um, there's a, a lot of studies that have already identified how dangerous are these particles. Um, so they made even, even studies on the people of a provincial and they were already showing, you know, serious respiratory problems. Um, there is incidence of um, uh, cell changes, you know, uh, DNA being affected, uh, uh, potential cases of cancer because of the chemicals uh, that are in the environment. Um, and I'll say that uh, water is a main issue in this case because uh, this is a region where the rivers have been somehow intervened, diverted for mining purposes. And also the way how the company deals with the dust because um, the, the, the mine operates seven days per week, 24 hours per day. And in order to, to, to control the dust, they they use water. And so and not only uh, this is a major then user of water, but also the company has diverted rivers and waterways, which have completely changed the landscape and, and also have curtailed the access to water uh, from the communities. So the communities went to uh, the constitutional court with this main case, and the constitutional court of Colombia agreed with the community that this couldn't continue this way. However, nothing happened since the delivery of the decision, which was in February. And so the, I was instructed then in the context of COVID, COVID-19, which really exacerbated the situation of this uh, population. So the women where you were particularly worried um, for the most vulnerable, their children and the elderly. Um, so I took this case to the um, UN special procedures um, and recently, uh, in fact, uh, on the 1st of October, we had a fantastic decision, which was delivered by seven um, special rapporteurs, including uh, the special rapporteur on environment and, and, and human rights, and the working group on business and human rights, uh, who, who basically collectively uh, called on the uh, closest pits to the, to the settlement, to the YU settlement, to stop uh, their operations in the context of COVID-19 to ensure protection of the right to life and the right to health of this community. So as you may imagine, this was um, very well received by the community. It was unprecedented. I was overjoyed. But it's all, it shows, in a way, um, the very high costs um, of coal mining uh, in modern times uh, of, at that scale. And it did, when working on this, it did 
open my eyes, if you want, to those, to those human rights and environmental costs that unfortunately this particular community was um, bearing all that impact. And sometimes here in Europe, you know, we, we couldn't imagine a life where we, we, we don't have access to water. I mean, basically they don't have running water. They, they have to receive water in handouts because the, mine, the, the mining operations have already taken away that from them. Um, and this is in a context, you know, where, where basically there is almost, the whole place is almost uh, deforestation, lack of food security as a consequence. So entire group whose life, future life is at serious risk. As, as indigenous groups. Um, so I am very happy that uh, my work uh, managed to secure this great outcome and, uh, and I'm looking forward to see how uh, the UN uh, oversees compliance with this, um, with this call, with this pronouncement. Monica, that's a terrific result. And it's really, really important that we have these big high profile cases and test cases that push legislation, I think, internationally and raise these issues to everybody's consciousness. I have to ask, and this is quite a tricky question to ask you, I guess, is you're talking about a probably a relatively poor indigenous community. Uh, where does the sort of funding and support come to be able to have people like you fight their corner? I mean, are they able to access um, philanthropic funds or is this something that, that was supported through their, you know, their own efforts? Because it's, you know, it's not an easy thing to do to take a court, a court case up to the UN like that. That's, that's very true. Well, I, I, in my uh, opinion, that's the way how um, I, I, I see the work of a lawyer so access to justice is fundamental. Access to justice is fundamental. So as a barrister, um, I wouldn't want to decline a client on the basis of their uh, being uh, unable to, to pay fees. You know, and this is just out of um, uh, the awareness of the need for access to justice in a context that is, is almost, you know, life or, or death. So sometimes that's uh, so often not the case for people, is it? I mean, it's so often that that these, you know, the, the, these big corporations can ride roughshod over communities and over over rights of communities because they are not able to defend themselves because they don't have access to justice. So that's an absolutely fundamental privilege and and right that people have, but very often one that they're denied. I think. That, that, that you are very right. You are very right about that, and that's that's why, in my opinion, um, um, these cases um, are of uh, somehow go beyond a particular case because what they are doing is they are making an impact that this goes beyond, and that that shapes the law in a way that uh, you know you may not need say another Torres Strait. Islander case because it clarifies the law, uh, and and then and then uh, action is taken in other jurisdictions without the need of further litigation. I think that is the uh, um, that's that's a very important aspect of this type of um, you know litigation. It's hugely important, and I think it probably has echoes though at a much smaller scale for some of the cases that have been happening here in the UK. And and if you look at some of the cases, particularly around fracking, where we've been looking at, you know, people who don't have access to to, to funds to support cases where they're trying to take big corporates, multinationals, international, global companies to court for 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 doing something that is fundamentally bad for the planet. 
you know, there are, there are, there is a debate about fracking, but if you say in its purest sense, it's probably not very good for the environment. Um, so it's really important that we've set that precedent and that we can apply those principles of law across the world. And in, you know, on obviously precedents are important. Some of your work's been, a lot of it's been focused around, um, Earth's jurisprudence isn't hasn't it, which is a, a concept that we've chatted about on the pod in in the past. That idea that the, that came out of the Bolivian Declaration of the Rights of Mother Earth that the, the Earth itself can be a petitioner. And I think you were involved in some work in Ecuador on in Mexico around that issue, weren't you? Yes, absolutely. In fact, um, I'm I am going to be in court next Monday. Um, yes, um, there's a hearing now, so the Equatorian. Constitutional Court is hearing the first ever rise of nature case. Um, and here, it, perhaps it's important to make this point. Uh, so this is, this is moving from the notion of protecting the environment because it has a use for human beings to a case, uh, right, to, or, or because of, of, of the importance of ensuring the right to a healthy environment of human beings to a case that is purely the protection of nature. And, and, that, and that has this fascinating aspect because I, um, and why did that, did, that, did that ended up being a, a purely rights of nature case? Uh, because um, it's about a um, cloud forest that is being threatened with uh, some developments. Um, but there is um, the population of this forest, it's not people. But birds, but species that are, um, you know, really at risk of extinction. But uh, uh, the, uh, for example, the wonderful um, uh, Andean bear, which inspired the character of the Paddington bear. So when I, <laughs> when I, I have to tell you, when I when I when I immerse myself into the evidence, I mean, it was it was it was wonderful. It was touching because I realized uh, forests have intelligence. Um, it was about the protection, not just of the species and of the trees, but of the life of the forest and, and the importance uh, of that in its own right. Mm. So uh, what, what I, I prepared was an amicus curiae to analyze all the um, relevant international treaties that protect biodiversity in itself and not because it is of some use for humanity so and that's fundamental isn't it to that principle yeah. of earth's jurisprudence which is that the natural elements so whether they're forests or rivers or mountains actually have a legal personality in their own right and can be argued for in a court of law on that basis and that's absolutely a cornerstone of that principle isn't it absolutely and this is the exciting uh, aspect of of, of my appearing before that court that my client is basically, um, you know, uh, nature. And, 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 and I, I believe that uh, this is going to be a very important precedent because it's the first time that the Constitutional Court of Ecuador looks in depth into what is the meaning of this particular provision in the, Constitu in the Constitution of Ecuador, Article 71, which has no other equivalent in any other um, a country in the world. So, so if it works, uh, and, and these jurisprudential developments cer certainly are going to inspire um, other systems. And I think we are driving a bit towards that awareness 
Um, and I think Latin America has been a pioneer in a way because indigenous peoples don't see themselves separated. Or they, they see themselves within nature. And yeah, they're inextricably bound to the land in which, in which they live, aren't they? And, they, and, and they, the two are, are as one, really, aren't they, in that sense of, of understanding and relationship with. Exactly, exactly. And I think this is, this is, a, this is a vision that um, is all obviously non-Western, but that we have a lot to learn from that. I mean, I, I say we because I'm, I'm living here, but obviously my roots are in Latin America, and I um, and I share that that uh, point of view. Is is I can I can easily understand um, why we can see ourselves as being just another living creature, as 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 any other species mm-hmm. in, in, in the place. Monica, I feel the world is a slightly safer place because you have you are fighting on its behalf and 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 that you're a kind of warrior for climate justice in the best possible way. But but what would you what would you ask others to do? Because we can't all have the the, the opportunities and, and the and the chances to, to do what you're doing. But obviously this is a message that we need to support and we need to share and we need to put calls out for action to to both individuals and to, to nations and to governments and to policymakers and perhaps to corporations as well. So what is it you think that citizens could do to kind of support this this drive to make sure that we recognize climate justice and human rights justice as integrally bound up with one another and we have that duty of responsibility to the planet? You know, I don't see myself as a, as a warrior. I was just lucky as a specialist in international law to, to uh, you know, use my skills to work. I think you're a warrior. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're fighting for the Paddingtons amongst all of us. And, and, it, and we are just so lucky that we have you because without people like you who are really going to be able to drill down and make, make um, nation states sit up and take notice, we would be in a, in a dire state. So I, I think that, you know, we are hugely lucky to have people like you fighting on our behalf. But, but, but do you think there is something that we can do? I mean, you have a call to, to to demand action of others? I mean, absolutely. I think that um, we, we have to realize that this issue is penetrating all areas of, of, of law, for example. So my first call is, you know, to, um, for, for, an aware, for growing awareness of that. And, and I'm telling you that this is the case from banking, you know, to energy sector. We know that the energy sector is huge. Um, so we are talking about really the future and how um, the future evolves. And obviously there are many um, important considerations here. One is to reflect on what is development and, 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 and what is progress. Uh, and I think in the context of COVID, we have been very shaken out by how important, for example, is to be able to breathe. And, and, and breathing, it's, you know, that was taken for granted, um, is seen now as something important. So people, people um, realize how important it was to access a green area, you know, to be out and to be able to walk and to be able to recharge and for mental health as well. So, so this is a very crucial moment. And, and, and I think that the entire legal industry, in fact, is waking up to, to a moment where we will have to be extremely creative to advise our clients across, because investors are also interested in looking at um, sustainable ways you know, to actually invest for, for the future. And, and I think part of the role of lawyers is to advise on, on, on that. Um, and at a very 
if you want a non-professional level, but at, but at a different level, the personal level, I would say these situations also poses questions to ourselves and our lifestyles, our life choices. Um, I, I became vegetarian in January. I have to confess that before I had never given great thought to that. But I, 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 I did change, uh, for example, and I, 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 I think it's been an interesting journey. But I think one of the issues that I, I think we shouldn't take for granted at all is waste. And waste, waste is something that we definitely, we definitely can do something about at the personal level. So I don't believe that the trajectory of progress is any more um, a consumption that doesn't stop. You know, if you are thinking about in the past, you know, to change mobile phone every every two years or one year, some people, I don't know. Does that really, you know, is that really something good? You know, where where does all this plastic and all these artifacts end? I mean, mm. is, is it possible that things will forever be producing? Because where do you put the the waste that we create? Yeah. And I think that, you know, perhaps if we've learned anything from COVID, we've learned that you can rebalance and readjust your, adjust your lifestyle and you can look at things differently and you can take actions and however small those actions are as citizens, they do have an impact because they all gather together to, to, to create huge change. So if we all stop overconsumption and over, you know, uh, just overproduction, then we'd be making major strides forward. Monica, we could chat to you for hours um, and, and we must have you back to tell us how, how you got on at, um, with, with the latest case. And also we wish you enormous luck for, for the Barrister of the Year um, competition. Not that we have a vote, but you've got our vote. So, so it's been fantastic. <laughs> Thank you so much for, for giving us an insight into the work that you've done and for kicking off our series on climate justice so magnificently. It's been an absolute delight to talk to you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for, for having me and all the best with the series of podcasts. Thank you. You've been listening to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, and our producer, Jim Hayward. If you like what you hear, why not subscribe via our website, theplanetpod.com, or via your favourite podcast app. Please don't forget to rate and review us. It really helps. And do follow us on Twitter at planet underscore pod and at Instagram. Until next time, thank you for listening and goodbye. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Hayward, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners. Without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>